Hey folks, Andy Patton here. The Zags blew the doors off of both BYU and Santa Clara last week. Two top 75 teams in the nation, according to Ken Palm. I'm here to talk about those games while answering listeners' submitted questions all episode long for Mailbag Monday. Starting your week off right here on the Locked On Zags podcast. Don't go away. You are Locked On Zags, your daily podcast on the Gonzaga Bulldogs. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What is going on, y'all? Welcome to the Locked On Zags Podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. I'm your host and longtime Gonzaga podcaster, Andy Patton, here to take you through another season of Gonzaga Hoops. Today's episode is brought to you by Sonos. Sonos is the official sponsor of ESPN College Football. Go to Sonos.com to learn more. I also want to thank all of you who have continued to make this podcast your first listen of the day. And of course, those of you who have checked out the show on YouTube, we are now heading towards 300 subscribers on the YouTube channel, which I sincerely appreciate all of you who have taken the time to listen to a show or watch a show on YouTube. If you have listened to the show or are listening to the show currently and have not hit that subscribe button, please just go to youtube.com, search Locked On Zags, hit that button. I really, really appreciate it. Today is Mailbag Monday. For a reminder, for those of you who are new to the show or have not participated in Mailbag Monday in the past, it is very, very simple to do so if you are interested. Just tweet at me at ScoreZagScore or at LockedOnZags whenever you are thinking of a question. I'll write it up in my handy-dandy note sheet, put it on the Mailbag Monday note, and it'll be ready to go when the podcast comes out. You can also email me at andypatton 13 at gmail.com to get your question or questions answered that way. We got a ton of questions from you all this week. I'm not surprised Gonzaga had two awesome games. There's some question about who should be at the top of the polls for the AP poll this week. Tons of different topics to talk about for Gonzaga fans. So I want to let you know that some of your questions did not get answered this week. They will be answered later this week. I have segments planned on Tuesday and Wednesday that will answer some of the questions you all asked. So if you listen to the show, you don't hear a question, don't fret. I promise you I'm going to answer it. I continue to make that promise that every question gets answered. So all those questions, I have a plan for them if they are not in this show. All right, let's get started. This first question comes from Christian via Gmail. He says, who's number one and does it matter? I watched a good portion of the Auburn Ole Miss game and it was entertaining. Jabari Smith is the real deal. A Gonzaga-Auburn matchup at some point would be awesome, entertaining, and provide some amazing individual matchups. The argument of Alabama defeated Gonzaga, Auburn defeated Alabama, therefore Auburn is the better team is the one that was brought up. Thoughts? Yeah, so the transitive property arguments are just are just bad. They should not be used. I'm. It's sad that broadcasters are using them, quite frankly. I'm glad that this broadcast seemed entertaining, but I think that that's, it's just a really flawed argument. I mean, Northwestern's not better than Baylor. Right, like nobody believe nobody believes that, but Texas Tech lost to Northwestern and beat Baylor. If you want to use the argument that you no know, Texas Tech was probably a little fatigued for playing four games in ten days, which is reasonable, then do you believe St. Mary's is better than UCLA or USC because St. Mary's beat Oregon earlier in the year, but Oregon just beat USC and UCLA on back-to-back games last week, which is a great performance by the Ducks. Here's the deal. All of this requires nuance. It requires the ability to look critically and not just look at result A versus result B and come to a conclusion. Most college basketball fans, I believe, can do that. Oregon 
got better as the season went on. They had a ton of transfers, a lot of new players. They started to gel at the right time. They're a good enough team to beat UCLA, USC, but they were not that kind of team early in the year when St. Mary's beat them. That does not mean that St. Mary's is better than UCLA. In this case, Gonzaga had a bad week. Every single team that is good this year has had a bad week. Duke had a bad week. They lost to Miami. Baylor just had a very bad week. It happens. Auburn has had a bad week. Gonzaga's bad week coincided with them losing to Alabama. Auburn's really good week and Alabama's bad week coincided with Auburn beating Bama. It also coincided, unfortunately, with a lot of college football fans who now don't have college football to watch, so they are now watching college basketball, and those fans were not really around when Gonzaga went through their struggle period early in the year against Alabama, so all they know is, well, we just saw Auburn beat Bama, and we know Gonzaga lost to Bama, and that's it. That's the extent of the information that exists, and and that's fine. I don't want to criticize people for preferring football over basketball, but understand that there's nuance to this conversation that isn't being isn't being discussed when the only relevant factor you have is this team beat this team and this team lost to that team. Having said all of that, there's a very legitimate argument for Auburn at number one. And this, this using this Alabama game as a precedence is, is irrelevant. You can throw that out completely and still have a reasonable argument for the Tigers. They're very good. They have more quad one plus quad two wins than Gonzaga does. Same number of losses in quad one, quad two, if I'm not mistaken, I believe so. So I don't think it's, if Auburn's number one, and by the time you're listening to this, the polls probably come out. If Auburn is number one, I'm not going to be that distressed about it. I think it's reasonable. I don't think that it's clear cut and dry that Gonzaga should be number one. I don't think it's clear cut and dry that Auburn should be number one. I think last week's results in general, Auburn beat Alabama and Ole Miss. Gonzaga blew the doors off BYU and Santa Clara. Gonzaga was more impressive last week than Auburn. The two teams that Gonzaga played, BYU and Santa Clara, are ranked very, very similar to the two teams that Auburn played in Alabama and Ole Miss. A lot of people will not understand that. They will believe like, well, Gonzaga did their stuff against the WCC. Auburn did their stuff against the SEC. Therefore, Auburn wins. And that's not a relevant argument either. Santa Clara is a better basketball team than Ole Miss. BYU is a comparable team to Alabama. I'm not sure which one is better. They are close. I think that is a close matchup. But Santa Clara, to me, is better than Ole Miss. I know a lot of people will not hear that, will not understand that. That is fine. I think there's a reasonable argument for both teams. I've also made it clear on this podcast, as Christian alluded to, that I don't really care what the AP poll looks like in January. It just doesn't really matter all that much. I'll be a little peeved if Gonzaga is below second, <laughs> because I don't think there's a there's a really super reasonable argument for any other team above Gonzaga other than Auburn. I think there are, you know, Baylor's going to be in that mix. Wisconsin's going to be in that mix. There are a couple other teams that are still going to be in that mix. I think Gonzaga should be one or two, but it's not going to, I'm not going to lose sleep over which, which of those two spots they're in come Monday. All right. This next question comes from John via Gmail. He says, as we score 110 points, we are also giving up 80 plus points per game. Any concern with that? And is that, or is that merely a function of the fast pace in which we have played? And by definition, if we score more, we also give up more points. The margin of victory is certainly impressive, and maybe that is what's most important. Yeah, I'm not concerned about giving up 80 points to these teams at all. <laughs> I cannot stress how little that is a concern to me. Gonzaga's points per possession is elite. Elite, they are scoring at an extraordinarily high level of efficiency. When you score a ton of points and when you score a lot of your points in transition or very quickly in a half-court offense, the other team has the ball in their hands a lot more often. 
If these teams were putting up highly efficient points per possession numbers, then I would be a little bit concerned because that means that Gonzaga's defense is not actually functioning very well. That has not been the case. The only team that had a good points per possession last week was BYU. And BYU is a really good offensive team. And they had like one of the most efficient halves they've had all season against Gonzaga in the first half. And they were still down by 12. So they top 25, borderline top 25 team in the country, putting together one of their most efficient half halves of basketball offensively. And they were still losing. There's just no reason to be concerned about this. Gonzaga's defense has been very good all year long. Their offense has taken a huge step in the last few games, which has allowed the other team to have the basketball in their hands more often. That's the only reason these scoring numbers are up. Next one comes from Christian. He says, This stretch of three games has been incredible with the Zags eclipsing the 100-point mark and setting assist records and, yes, shooting the three really well. However, are there any areas to work on? He goes on, he says, the Zags had 13 turnovers versus Pepperdine, 11 versus BYU, and 16 versus Santa Clara. That was the only criticism Coach Brian Michelson had when he was interviewed after the Santa Clara game. Do you think this is an issue, or is this more of a pace of play thing? Yeah, again, it's a little bit more of a pace of play thing in a lot of ways. The more, I mean, again, it goes without saying that the more possessions you have, the more likely you are to commit a turnover. That's just fairly basic facts. Gonzaga will probably have less turnovers against a team like St. Mary's, even though they will probably score way less points against St. Mary's because of the defensive strategy that they use and also because they hold onto the basketball for 29 and a half seconds every possession. So Gonzaga is just not going to have as many opportunities to turn the basketball over. I think it's also important to look past the data and to look at the actual results. And I, I didn't do that specifically for this example here, but if you're looking at a three-point percentage or you're looking at turnover rate or something like that, we have to remember that Gonzaga plays their walk-ons for significant chunks of the second half in a lot of instances. Like Gonzaga was shooting over 70% for the entire game against, I think it was against BYU or Pepperdine, one of those two games, and it fell just below 70% at the last minute because Gonzaga missed a few shots at the very end of the game. Doesn't mean they weren't a 70% shooting team throughout the game. They pretty much were. It just fell at the very end. Likewise, if you say, well, they had 15 turnovers, but 12 of those turnovers happened in the first 38 minutes of the game, and three of them happened in the last couple of minutes when Joe Few and Will Graves and Matthew Lang were on the floor. Well, I'm not saying those don't count. They are turnovers, but it's not really an accurate way to look at how the team performed in that game. Beyond that, the, the players who matter the most with regards to turnovers are Andrew Nampard, Rasir Bolton, Nolan Hickman. Those, two, those three guys have been really, really good at taking care of the basketball lately. Extremely good. That is what matters. Obviously, we've talked about this on the podcast before. Some of Gonzaga's bigs, really all three of the big ones who play a lot, Chet Holmgren, Anton Watson, Drew Timmy, have had some issues with turnovers this season. I do think that is a concern coming into March. If Gonzaga cannot efficiently make that high-low entry pass because they're continually turning the basketball over, if Drew Timmy multiple times per game turns into a double team and loses the basketball, these are things that are not really a concern for me right now because they don't happen all that often. And of course, Drew Timmy gets the ball basically every possession. So of course, it's going to happen every once in a while. But there are things that could that, that it wouldn't hurt for Gonzaga to tighten up between now and March. I guess let's put it that way. Not really concerned about it. It's more of a pace of play thing than anything else. But it's something to monitor. All right, and the last question of segment one, this comes from 8206 at 8206 on Twitter. He says, not that it's terribly important in the grand scheme of things, but any sense of why we don't see even more of the walk-ons during blowouts, particularly Abe Eagle and Colby Brooks? 
It's sort of strange how we see some and never some others. Uh, it's not strange at all. It is an NCAA rule. <laughs> that is the simple explanation. As I understand it, Gonzaga can only play a certain number of players uh, for the season. And these guys, they, they, they're, not <laughs> they're not dressing. They're not eligible to play this year. That is the way that I understand it. I know for a fact that they do not travel a certain number of players. So even in this last game against Santa Clara, not only did Eagle and Brooks not travel with the team, Joe Few did not travel either. So that was why at the very end of the game when Gonzaga was playing their kind of traditional walk-on lineup, Hunter Salas was still on the floor despite not being in that conversation at all because Joe Few was not there. He wasn't He wasn't with the team. Eagle and Brooks do not travel with the team. On home games, as I understand it, they have a certain number of players they're allowed to dress. So if for some reason Will Graves or Matthew Lang were not able to dress, I believe they could dress uh, one of Brooks or Eagle in their place and have them ready to play potentially. But again, I don't think that it's really likely to happen in any circumstance. So that's that's the understanding that I have. I know it's frustrating probably for these two guys who knew that they weren't going to be significant players on this roster when they chose to come to Gonzaga and walk onto the basketball team, but they haven't played at all. They were here for all of last year, and they're here for this year, and they haven't gotten a single minute of playing time, and I imagine that that's not, not the most fun. So maybe there'll be an opportunity for the rest of the season, but I would be very surprised if either of them play this year. All right, we got more listener-submitted questions coming up in the second segment, but before we get there, I want to tell you all about Built Bar. It is the new year, so that means New Year's resolutions. If yours is about getting fit or eating healthier, make sure you include Built Bar in your plan. Built Bar is the protein bar that tastes like a candy bar, maybe even better than a candy bar. Built Bar makes it easier to stick to your resolution because it tastes so good you'll want to eat it, unlike other protein bars, which can be chalky or waxy or taste like a chemical spill. You want to eat healthy, but it just gets so boring. By now, you might be thinking, this is just not worth it. Where's the chocolate? But Bill Bars are covered in 100% real chocolate. In fact, here's an idea for the new year. Go get all of your secret treat stashes. The ones at home, the ones in the pantry, the ones in your office, in your car, wherever they may be. Throw them all out and replace them with Bill Bars. So when you're craving a snack or a treat, you can reach for something that's healthy and tastes incredible. Even if you're not a huge fan of working out, you can at least eat something that tastes good and is good for you. That way, when you enjoy a delicious Built Bar, you can almost count it as a workout. In fact, now go to BuiltBar.com and use promo code LOCKED15 and you will get 15% off your next order. Use promo code LOCKED15 for 15% off your next order at BuiltBar.com. All right, segment two. Still Andy Patton, still locked on Zags, and we're still answering listener-submitted questions all episode long for Mailbag Monday. This next one comes from the old Heffalump at Old on Twitter. He says, How does Gonzaga compare to generational offensive year in the WCC 1989 LMU? Yes, those who are too young or who have not heard the story of the 89-90 LMU Lions, they were one of the fastest-paced Highest scoring teams in NCAA history. Bo Kimball, Hank Gathers, extraordinary team. I'll tell you this right now. Gonzaga, better defensively. (laughs) That LMU team, I cannot break it up between conference and non-conference. So for the full season, that LMU team averaged averaged 122.4 points per game, which is just obscene. Perhaps just as obscene, they gave up 108.1 points per game. 
For Gonzaga, through their three games in conference play, they're scoring 114.4 points per game and giving up 83. So they're about eight points per game less than LMU, while giving up 25 points less per game. A couple other stats, LMU shot 51.9% from the field, 40.4% on threes, 70.2% from the free throw line. They had 23.8 assists per game and 18.4 turnovers per game. Gonzaga, again, this is just through their first three games, 60% from the field, 45.8% from three, 72.6% from the free throw line, 26.7 assists, and 13 turnovers. So shooting better from field, shooting better from three, shooting better from the free throw line, more assists, less turnovers per game. But again, LMU did this for an entire season. Gonzaga, I hate to break it to you all, they are not going to shoot this well for the rest of the WCC slate. They're going to be pretty dang good, but I don't think they're going to shoot 46% from three for the entire rest of the WCC season, which actually leads well into my next question from Jake Hatch at Jacob C. Hatch on Twitter, who says, how long can the Zags continue to score 100 plus per game? Can they do it the rest of the way in WCC play? Want to shout out Jake, by the way, he is the host of the Locked On Cougars podcast, a podcast all about BYU Uh, It's a great listen if you have not checked it out already. Jake is an awesome, awesome listen and a great Twitter follow as well. Anyway, to get back to the question, uh, no, I don't think Gonzaga is going to score 100 for the rest of the way in the WCC. I know it looks like it after these first three games, but notably they have not played the two teams who are most likely to prevent them from getting to 100 points. That is, of course, St. Mary's and San Francisco. They got San Francisco on Thursday night. The main thing, and BYU obviously struggled because they didn't have the size down low. Part of that was because they did not have Gavin Baxter. Uh, and I know that he's not a great defensive player, but he's at least another big body that could have helped slow down Drew Timmy a little bit. But St. Mary's and USF do. They do have the size to potentially really challenge Gonzaga. I don't think the, the size that they have, the players that they have, Dan Foto, Matthias Toss, those guys at St. Mary's are... are like really good defensive players are good enough to like really stop Drew Timmy the way that like a Mark Williams at Duke might have been, but they're good enough and they're big enough to at least, you know, more effective double teams, uh, make him a little bit more uncomfortable. And if Drew Timmy's not quite as efficient as in like doesn't miss a shot, which he basically didn't against both Santa Clara and BYU this week, if he's a little less efficient, it forces Gonzaga to have to do a few things differently. I think the 46% from three is going to come down. Uh, you know, that maybe they're not going to come all the way down to 32, 33 like they were, were earlier in the year. Maybe they'll settle in 36, 37, which is still very good. But if you're talking about a 10% reduction in your three-point rate and your best player, Drew Timmy, is a little bit more bottled up, doesn't mean they're going to lose. <laughs> you know, It doesn't mean that they're not still going to score 85-plus points. But there's definitely going to be a few games. Maybe I'm not sure that they get to 100 against St. Mary's either of the times they play them. And frankly, I'm not sure they do against San Francisco either. They might. I think there's a, there's a decent chance that they do there, partly because San Francisco plays a, a better pace than St. Mary's. St. Mary's on offense is going to make it really hard for Gonzaga just because they play so slow and they're methodical that even if they only score 40 points, they're probably going to hold Gonzaga to under 70 or under 80 at least. Which again, if Gonzaga wins by 25 against St. Mary's, I don't think anybody's going to be too upset, but I don't think it's going to come with 100 points on the board. Next question comes from John via Gmail. He says, How concerned should we be with Caden Perry's ongoing back spasms issue? His inconsistency in being able to see playing time is concerning not so much this year, but next year when he will be needed more with Holmgren leaving and potentially Timmy leaving. The front court next year without Perry could be concerning. Can the coaches count on him to play game game in and game out? 
What changes the trajectory of his ability to see consistent playing time? Yeah, I appreciate the question, but I, I got to be honest, I don't really know <laughs> how to answer it. I don't know. I don't have access to his medical information. I'm not going to get access to his medical information. So I just, I don't know where he's going to be next year. For this year, I it just I don't think it matters. I think the urgency, not that he's, that they don't want him to be playing, but I just don't think there's any urgency to get him back on the floor. Like I said, you know, against, they didn't need him yesterday. They didn't need him against BYU. They're not going to need him a lot this season, barring something else changing. So there's a, there's a possibility that he is at the point where he's close to being able to play, but Gonzaga is just being extra cautious. I don't know. It's also possible that he's really hurting and that he's really struggling to get back and that it could bleed into next year. That's that's very possible. I don't I just I don't have that information. What I do know is that the staff knows. <laughs> they're very in tune to how this could be impacting him next season. And even if they don't know right now, they're going to know by the time the offseason rolls around like, "Hey, is this is this kid going to be able to play 25 minutes per night for us next year?" And if they don't think that he will, they will be very aggressive in finding out ways to add to this roster for next season. Obviously, Timmy's return would would change that significantly. But if Timmy leaves, we know Holmgren's gone. And if Caden Perry's health is going to be in question at any point next year, and the staff is aware of that, they're going to go out, they're going to find a transfer, they're going to make they're going to make something happen where they can add to this roster. So it's not just Anton Watson and Ben Gregg and Braden Huff and nothing really else behind that. They need to make sure that they have something uh, in place in case Caden Perry does have to miss some time next year. But my my instinct from this is that they're just being extra cautious with him right now and kind of letting him get fully healthy. I thought it's I was surprised that he played to begin the season. I thought that was considering how significant his back injury was to cost him like a huge chunk of his high school senior year for him to come in and play right away for Gonzaga. A, a bit surprised me. Again, I don't know what the medical diagnosis was obviously at that time, but they felt he was ready to play. Now I think they might be taking a step back and saying, hey, this is this is not something we, we don't want to push it with him at this point. We don't need to, so we're not going to. But again, I want to be clear, <laughs> not only am I not a doctor, I don't have access to any of this information, so I don't know exactly what the status is for him. But I don't think him missing a few games here in the middle of this season is necessarily any indication about what his status is going to be for next year. All right, next question also from John. He says, how do you see Hunter Salas fitting into this Gonzaga offense? I ask this question because it does not appear to me that he has hit his stride in finding his role in the offense and knowing how and when to pour his enormous talented athletic gifts into the offensive machine. If you were the coach, what would you be doing to help him develop more smoothly into the offense? And if you disagree with my premise or my observation, please let me know why. Yeah, I do disagree <laughs> with the premise. Uh, I don't see any indication that Salas has not assimilated well into this offense. I'm not really sure where that idea comes from at all. He's not playing a lot of minutes, but I don't think that that's any indication that he has not found his rhythm offensively. He's shooting 58% from the field. He's shooting just a hair under 70% on two-point shots. He's shooting 81% from the free throw line. Those are all extraordinarily numbers. He's not a great three-point shooter. That has not borne itself out in a problem for Gonzaga because he's just not taking a lot of threes. So he's not causing them problems. He's not disrupting the offense by taking ill-contested three-point shots. He's not missing easy shots that he 
shouldn't that he should be making. He's converting them at a higher rate than almost everybody on the team, particularly among the guards. Again, 70% on two-pointers. That is incredible. He's converting at the free throw line. We're talking about a guy who's got an O rating of 117.6, which is is not the highest on the team. There's a lot of guys higher than that, but 117.6 is really good. It's just that everybody on Gonzaga's team is converting extremely well offensively. That's why they're a well-oiled machine. Per 40 numbers, which are not always the most reliable because, you know, players, are, he's not playing 40 minutes per game, but his per 40 numbers are 14.7 points and 7.2 rebounds per game. That was pretty good. That looks a lot like Joel Iyayi. Of course, Joel did not play 40 minutes per night. Joel played 32, 33 minutes per night. But if you were to extrapolate that, you're talking about a guy who's averaging 11 points and five and a half rebounds per game-ish. That's pretty good. I don't, it's not that I don't think Hunter Salas has things he can work on. He obviously does. I just don't buy the premise that he has struggled to find his stride offensively. He's a great cutter. He moves extremely well without the basketball. He's tenacious on defense. I know this question is about his offense, but he's he's a hellraiser on defense who moves well without the basketball on offense, doesn't play outside of himself, and converts really well when he does take shots. I would like to see him with be more of a facilitator. I'd like to have see him run pick and roll actions. We haven't really seen him do that. I haven't seen him. His mid-range attempts are, are virtually non-existent. He hasn't shown that he has a pull-up game. He hasn't shown that he has a three-point shot. Those are things that I would like to see from him and that NBA scouts almost certainly would like to see from him. The fact that he's taken so few threes and so few pull-ups is why I don't believe he's going to test or go to the NBA. He might test out the waters, but... Scouts haven't gotten an opportunity to see him do any of that stuff yet. So I would like to see a little bit more of it, but we don't need it this year. I don't think that his fit is in any way problematic for Gonzaga's offense. He just hasn't hasn't fully developed yet, in part because they haven't needed him to. It's similar to Julian Strother last year. We didn't see a lot of the stuff that he's actually very good at. We didn't see him play this great defense or, or become a great rebounder or you know be a downhill scorer and drive to the basket the way that Strother does now because he just he didn't play enough last year for it to be something we needed him to do. I think Salas will show a lot of that stuff that he needs to work on next season, and it won't be it won't be an issue. All right, final question of the sec of the segment comes from Christian. He says the Lady Zags are three and zero in WCC play. Is getting at least a split with BYU necessary for the Zags to make the NCAA tournament? Yeah. So right now, according to ESPN's bracketology report, Gonzaga is on the first four out line at ESPN. So they are right in the conversation for an at-large bid. This is, of course, assuming that BYU secures the automatic qualifier from the WCC. But if Gonzaga does beat BYU and doesn't lose any other game, that's the thing. They have to be pretty much perfect throughout the rest of the WCC, and they get at least one win over BYU. I think it could happen. I think that would do it. But that that requires them to be basically perfect. The much much easier way to do this is to beat BYU in March. Just just get, you can lose both of them in the regular season. That's totally fine. But beat them in March. Beat them in Las Vegas. Secure your automatic qualifier. Yeah, if they lost a couple other games in the WCC, their seed would be kind of bad, which isn't great. But I'd rather that than be sweating through whether they're going to get an automatic bid because I I just I don't know that their resume is going to be strong enough unless they secure multiple wins against BYU or do not lose to anybody else in conference play. All right, two segments down. Coming up, we're going to answer even more listener-submitted questions. But before we get there, I want to tell you all about Bet Online. Bet Online would like to wish you all a happy new betting year as we continue to march to the playoffs and beyond. Even in 2022, Bet Online remains the number one spot for all of the best sports wagering action. 
In fact, with the new year comes a new updated desktop and mobile website. Sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use our promo code Locked On to get started. From football, basketball, hockey, boxing, and UFC, right to your favorite Vegas casino games. Don't wait to take advantage of all the amazing offers available for 2022. BetOnline is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all of your favorite sports. All right, segment three. Still Andy Patton, still locked on Zags, and Mailbag Monday rolls along. His next question comes from Christian via Gmail. He says, the freshman talent trio of Chet Holmgren, Paolo Banchero, and Jabari Smith. At this point, their stats are fairly close. At this point of these three, who is your freshman of the year, and is this upcoming draft deeper than last year's draft? So I can't I can't really speak on the draft depth just as a as as a whole, because I don't know I, from what I've read, from the mock drafts that I followed, from what I followed last year's draft class pretty closely. I think this class is a little bit more top heavy, but I think last year's class, last year's class probably had a little bit more depth. But again, a lot can change between now and March. And then again, from March to June, players will really wow and impress in workouts. So I don't think that they're that dramatically different, really. Last year's class was obviously pretty top heavy as well. So this year's class has a little bit more wing depth, a little bit more of the point forward guys, certainly in Smith and Bancaro. So I think it offers a little bit more things than last year's class, but I don't know about top to bottom in terms of the depth. In terms of freshman of the year, I think it's going to be Palo. I'd be fairly surprised if it wasn't him. He's averaging the most points. Uh, Chet's got him in rebounds. Uh, Bancaro's got more assists than either Smith or Holmgren. Uh, obviously, Holmgren's leading in blocks by a significant amount and field goal percentage. But Bancaro, again, 18 points, seven and a half rebounds for Duke. Really nice numbers. He's a more complete offensive player than either Holmgren or Smith. And that's not a knock on either of them. Bancaro's just really, really offensively gifted. Holmgren's obviously the best defensive player out of that group, the best peer five out of that group. Both those guys kind of play more of a point forward type role. Holmgren is a good outside shooter, obviously, but he's not, he doesn't really play that point forward role in the same way. He's, he's, and certainly defensively, he's much different than either of them. He's, he's clearly a under the rim, rim protecting center, and he's going to be very, very good at that. So I, I think, I think Holmgren has a good chance to be the best NBA player out of the group. Uh, I also think Bancaro's probably going to be the freshman of the year, and I don't think that that's necessarily that bad. Chet doesn't play on a team that allows him to have the usage rate that would be necessary to be the freshman of the year. Bancaro obviously plays on a really talented team. Duke has a lot of other dudes, but he still gets more usage in the offense. And Jabari Smith gets a ton of usage in the offense for his team as well at Auburn. But I still think, I think Bancaro's going to be the guy who wins the freshman of the year. All right, next question from Sam Schrader at Sam Schrader 2 on Twitter. He says, in three years' time, do you think an all-Zags rotation in the NBA would be able to compete for an NBA playoff berth? This includes players who are on the current Gonzaga roster that would be in the league by then. I'm curious who you would pick to have in a 9-10 to man rotation and who you think would fill out the rest of the roster. Let us know your potential starting lineup, main rotation guys, and who would be in the reserve roles? Oh man, this is fun. I could do this. I could have probably made an entire segment out of this question. Probably an entire episode, frankly, if I wanted to. Uh, here's my best guess at a starting five in three years' time. Starting with the five, Chet Holmgren. Starting at the four, DeMontis Sabonis. Starting at the three, and playing out of position in the NBA is Rui Hachimura. And then your guards, Jalen Suggs and Nolan Hickman. That would be my starting five. I think you could make an argument to start Corey Kispert in there, but I don't. Do you start him at the two and start Jalen Suggs at the one? 
I, Corey Kispert is not an NBA two, and a starting lineup that includes DeMontis Sabonis, Rui Hachimura, and Corey Kispert is going to get gashed defensively. Absolutely gashed. Even if Chet Holmgren and Jalen Suggs, who are both very good defensive players, and Chet will be a good defensive player in the NBA, you're going to get gashed defensively with those guys. Rui Suggs Hickman is a is better, <laughs> better defensively. I think Hickman has the ability to be a good NBA defensive player three years from now. I think he might already be there. But the t- this team is going to be challenged in the backcourt. The backups that I laid out for this team would be Kelly Olynyk, Brandon Clark, Corey Kispert, and Hunter Salas. Olynyk is going to be 34. So there's a reasonable chance that he's not a super productive NBA player anymore. If that's the case, either of Killian Tilly or Zach Collins or Drew Timmy potentially could be kind of your replacement backup there. Collins, obviously, it depends on his health. Killian Tilly, I think, will, will would make this team, certainly, but I'm just not sure if he would be in the rotation. But guard depth is the challenge here. You have Jalen Suggs, you have Nolan Hickman and Hunter Salas, neither who have proven that they're going to be legitimate NBA players. I believe that they will, but three years is not a long time from now. You're asking them to be like NBA caliber, playoff caliber point guards or guards in the NBA by the time they're 22. I'm not sure that I see it happening. Joel Ayayi is in that mix as well, but right now he has not proven himself to be a rotation player in the NBA, especially not on a playoff caliber team. So I I lean no. I don't think that you'd make a playoff caliber team with this group right now. Gonzaga's NBA talent is just so front court heavy. It's just not backcourt heavy yet. Obviously, there's a chance that like Anthony Black commits to Gonzaga, has a monstrous freshman season, goes to the NBA and starts kicking ass right away. That could happen. Certainly Dominic Harris could pop and be a really, really good NBA player. I did not mention Julian Strother. He's not really a guard, but he could be on this team. I don't think that would be surprising. Same with Andrew Nemhard, although I would be pretty surprised if Nemhard becomes a good rotation NBA player for a playoff caliber team. I just, I'm, I'm not sure I see it there. So I think they'd probably fall a little bit short of that. I think you could make a good NBA team with Gonzaga players in the the next couple of years. Maybe not a great team, but a decent team. Certainly Sabonis, Rui, Suggs is a really nice group right there. Holmgren is almost certainly going to be good. So those guys with Brandon Clark, I think you got a decent team. It's just not quite complete enough to be a playoff caliber roster. All right, last question of the show. This one comes from Christian. He says, I was frustrated by some folks' critical comments about Umar Balo's body language when he was with the Zags. I am happy he has found success in the Arizona program with Coach Lloyd. Is body language overrated in terms of its impact on team morale? Other Zag fans have commented on how much fun this Zags team seems to be having. So body language is not overrated. It is very significant, I believe, in terms of how teammates perceive their own teammates. So how the coaches and how the players perceive a player's body language is monumentally important for team morale. If one of your teammates is throwing towels or rolling his eyes or kicking shit or whatever like that, you're going to have team issues. You're going to have you're going to have meetings. Coaches are going to be mad. Players are going to be mad. They're not going to be happy about that. Where I think body language could be overrated is by fans who see five to ten second clips of a player on the sideline during a basketball game and think that guy doesn't look like he wants to be here. Now I have you know a differing opinion of him. That is probably overrated. What we see on a, on a TV broadcast is not a full picture of, of how a player might be. Like, a player might be reacting to a way that to us on TV may appear like he's really pissed off. He's, he must be mad at his team. He must be mad at the coach. And it might be something totally different. We just do not know. 
But if you see a teammate getting mad at one of his teammates for being like that, then you probably have a little bit better idea of what is happening or what's going on there. So in terms of Balo in general, there was reason to believe he was not happy in a Gonzaga uniform. Um, there, I, I, I know I've talked to people with around the program who got a sense that he was he was ready to move on. Let's put it that way. That's the most polite way that I'll put that. And that's great. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't get the impression that he was like pissing off his teammates. It's, it, by all accounts, his, his teammates loved him and love him still and support him on social media. I see it all the time. So I don't think there's a big issue there. I think he just wanted to play more, wasn't playing more, wanted to go somewhere else where he'd play more. That's totally fine. And it happened. It's great. It worked out so well for him because he goes to Arizona. He does not have any body language issues there. He's playing a significant role. He's contributing well. So yeah, fans probably saw him looking pissed off and, and made assumptions about it. And I don't think that that's great. But, you know, it's just one of those things that happens. Certainly body language does matter to how you're perceived by your teammates. But fans... Are, they're going to do that. That's just kind of a part of the deal. But I don't think that it's something that matters all that much uh, in terms of their perception of players. All right. That is going to do it for today. We got San Francisco coming up on Thursday, which is going to be super fun. For those who missed that, they announced that San Francisco Gonzaga is on for Thursday at 8 p.m., replacing the Pacific game that got canceled because of COVID concerns with the Tigers program. So we got a preview of that game coming up this week, all right here on the Locked On Zags podcast, which is available wherever you get your podcasts and, of course, available on YouTube. Hit that subscribe button if you have not already. Finally, now is a great time to make your second listen of the day, the Locked On Bets podcast. Locked On Bets is your daily one-stop shop for all of your gambling needs. Locked On Bets is hosted by your boy Q with expert analysis and insight from Lee Sterling. All right, thank you all for listening, and go Zags.